You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 259, The Battle of Camden. The last time we left our story at the end of July 1780, with General Horatio Gates having taken command of the Southern Army in North Carolina and almost immediately beginning to march south toward the British outpost at Camden in South Carolina. Gates had taken a particularly dangerous route to Camden through an area that was full of Tories and short on supplies. He did so in hopes of reaching the outpost at Camden just over the South Carolina border as quickly as possible. British General Cornwallis had established a series of outposts throughout South Carolina in order to pacify the population and to raise Loyalist militia. Cornwallis had remained in Charleston, hoping to reestablish civilian rule as a way of winning back the hearts and minds of the people of South Carolina by returning things to normal as soon as possible. He established a Loyalist newspaper in Charleston and called on the royal governor to step up and lead the royal colony once again. Governor Josiah Martin joined Cornwallis in Charleston, but he was really of little help. After writing a proclamation for Cornwallis, Governor Martin wrote the general a letter saying he was not a particularly competent leader. Quote, Your lordship knows, however, that provincial governors have not always been chosen in our country for fitness and competence of their talents and therefore will not be surprised to find me as ignorant as many of my brethren in an office, or more so. Cornwallis was a military officer and had little experience as a civilian leader. He was growing frustrated with the pressures of trying to run a colony. So when he got word that General Gates was leading a new Continental Army toward Camden, Cornwallis was more than happy to leave the capital and march out into the field at the head of a column of British combat veterans. On August 9th, Cornwallis received notice in Charleston that General Gates was at the head of a new Continental Army of 5,000 soldiers plus militia, and that they were marching toward the outpost at Camden. By the following day, Cornwallis had assembled his army and was on the march. Three days later, his force entered Camden, completing a more than 100-mile march. Even after Cornwallis's army arrived in Camden, British forces there totaled only about 2,200 men, less than half the number that the enemy supposedly had. Only a little over one-third of Cornwallis's men were British regulars. About 15% of his force was local Loyalist militia that was not considered terribly reliable, but about half the force under his command were provincial regiments. Now, these were not militia. They were battle-hardened Loyalists who had fought in many battles and skirmishes. They included Bannister Tarleton's brigade and others from the north who had fought in earlier campaigns. Given the reportedly large force of the enemy, 
Cornwallis considered retreating with his entire force back to Charleston. He rejected that option pretty quickly, though. As he noted in letters to Lord Germain, a retreat would have required him to abandon a large amount of military stores and probably about 800 sick and invalid soldiers who were convalescing at Camden. Further, if the British simply retreated back to Charleston and gave the rebels control of all the outposts in South Carolina, they would never be able to convince the population to accept British rule. If the British did not succeed in battle, they still had a good line of retreat back to Charleston. So, considering all this, Cornwallis opted to stay and fight. Over the next couple of days, Cornwallis attempted to gain intelligence about the enemy force. He sent a local Tory to the American camp, pretending to be a local patriot who was originally from Maryland. This spy even managed to get a personal meeting with General Gates, at which he offered to spy for the Americans. This, of course, was a ruse. The spy collected as much information as he could about the Patriot forces, then returned to Cornwallis under the pretext of going to spy for the Americans and told Cornwallis everything he had learned. Cornwallis also sent out Tarleton's cavalry to engage in reconnaissance. Tarleton captured several American sentries, who he and his men interrogated in their usual rough fashion. The intelligence confirmed that the Americans probably had close to 5,000 soldiers, plus another 1,500 or so Virginia militia that were expected to join the enemy very soon. But despite being heavily outnumbered, Cornwallis determined that he would engage the enemy. On the night of August 15th, he began a night march to the north of Camden, hoping to surprise the Continentals. Meanwhile, General Gates had plans of his own to attack the British. Cornwallis's estimate of American troop strength was a little high. But what Cornwallis didn't know, or at least what he did not write in his reports, was that the condition of the American army was pretty miserable. Gates had set out on his march into South Carolina with about 2,000 soldiers. During the march, he finally merged in with General Caswell's North Carolina militia, thus doubling the size of his army. Gates, however, did not keep his whole army together. He sent off Colonel Marion's South Carolina militia, along with about a third of his field artillery, to assist Colonel Sumter with the capture of some British supply wagons, something I discussed last time. More perplexing, Gates left behind the cavalry under Colonel William Washington before he even began his march. Without the cavalry, the army had no one who could scout and gather intelligence. I can't say for certain why he did this, but it's possible Gates believed that Colonel Washington would retain loyalty to his distant kinsman, General George Washington, and Gates therefore wanted to prevent any potential political rivals from playing any role in the success of the battle. This is similar to what Gates did when he sidelined Arnold during the Saratoga campaign. But Colonel Washington was no Arnold. He did not ignore Gates and ride out anyway. He followed orders, and he remained behind in North Carolina. Gates's mounted troops on the campaign would be limited to about 60 dragoons led by Colonel Armand, a French officer who had joined the Continental Army. Now, since he had caught up with the army in late July, Gates had never really done a proper review of his army. He was just relying on estimates from his subordinates. He thought that he had an army of close to 7,000 men under his command. On the eve of battle, Continental Colonel Otho Williams 
performed his own actual count of the men available for battle. Williams was a Continental officer in command of the Maryland Line. He had joined the war back in 1776 as a lieutenant at the Siege of Boston, and within a few weeks, as the regiment grew and was incorporated into the Continental Army, Williams quickly rose to the rank of major. By the end of the year, Congress had promoted him to colonel. However, Williams did not receive the news of the promotion until after he had been taken prisoner at Fort Washington in New York. He spent more than a year as a prisoner of war until he could be exchanged in 1778 after Saratoga. After his return to the Army, Williams built up the 6th Maryland Regiment into an effective fighting force. He deployed south under General DeKalb in the spring of 1780 before Gates took command of the Army. So Williams was a very experienced officer, and his report that the Army had just over 3,000 men did not seem to phase Gates at all. The general still believed that he was facing only the Camden garrison under Lord Ralden, which had only about a thousand men. So Gates's response on learning that he really had only about 3,000 effectives was that he had more than enough for his purposes. The other issue was that his men were in terrible condition. They had marched more than a hundred miles on starvation rations and without enough water. The men were hungry and exhausted. To give them some energy, they received a meal that consisted of improperly cooked bread, fresh beef, and molasses that was mixed into some sort of mush. The result of this meal was that most of the army got a terrible case of the runs. Men had to drop out of ranks throughout the night march before the battle to deal with terrible cases of diarrhea. Even so, Gates planned to go ahead with the march south toward Camden. He issued orders on August 15th that the army would march at 10 p.m., the same time General Cornwallis was beginning his march north from Camden in search of the enemy. At about 2 a.m., Tarleton's battalion, which was leading the British column, ran into Armand's dragoons at the head of the American column. The surprised and outnumbered American horsemen began to retreat. The British pursued but halted after running into Virginia infantry that had formed a defensive line. Both armies were now aware of the presence of each other. They backed off and waited till dawn for further action. Both sides had also taken a few prisoners, from which they hoped to gain more intelligence about the enemy. The Americans learned from these captured prisoners that Cornwallis had 3,000 regulars ready to attack only a few hundred yards in front of them. While this was an overstatement of the numbers, it was the first time the Americans learned that they were facing an army under General Cornwallis, not just the small garrison at Camden under Lord Ralden. When Williams reported this news to General Gates, he said, quote, The general's astonishment could not be concealed. Gates realized that he was no longer leading a surprise raid against a British outpost. He was facing General Cornwallis himself, along with the army he brought from Charleston. Gates called a council of war and informed them that they were facing a much larger army than expected and asked his officers, quote, Gentlemen, what is to be done? There was a long silence. General DeKalb had commented before the council to some of his fellow officers that retreat was really the best option, but he remained silent at the council. General Edward Stevens of the Virginia Militia finally said, Gentlemen, is it too late now to do anything but fight? 
Without further discussion, the council disbanded and the officers returned to their regiments to prepare for battle. Gates deployed his army for battle. On the right, he placed his best soldiers, the Continental Regiments, under General DeKalb. These were the Maryland and Delaware lines that DeKalb had brought south several months ago. DeKalb had originally led about 1,400 Continentals, but by the night of the battle, disease and desertions had depleted the ranks, and Gates kept the 1st Maryland Regiment under General Smallwood in reserve, so that there were only about 900 Continentals on the front line. To the left of the Continentals, in the center of the American lines, were the 1,800 or so North Carolina militia under General Richard Caswell. As I mentioned before, Caswell was a capable politician, but a terribly inexperienced field officer. Making up the far left of the line were about 700 Virginia militia under the command of General Edward Stevens. Although Stevens had personally been present at Brandywine and Germantown, the militia under his command had almost no battle experience. These were recruits collected in Virginia in response to the desperate calls following the capture of the Southern Army under Lincoln at Charleston. The men had been given muskets with bayonets, but had received no training on using the bayonet in battle. General Gates himself set up command well behind the reserves. As he had at other battles, Gates remained too far from the front lines to see what was happening and he would rely on messengers to inform him of events as they unfolded. On the British side, Lord Ralden lined up his loyalist militia on the British left that would face the American right, the Continentals under DeKalb. In the center, four British artillery pieces threatened to blunt any direct attack. On the British right, facing the militia, Cornwallis deployed the bulk of his army, including most of his regulars and his experienced provincials, under the immediate command of Lieutenant Colonel James Webster, a very capable officer who was serving as a general in America. Swamps covered both sides of the field, preventing either army from attempting a flanking maneuver. The only way forward was a frontal assault. At dawn, the British marched forward, flags flying and fife and drum corps announcing their approach. The American colonel, Otho Williams, rode back to inform General Gates The American commander gave no orders in reply, but seemed content to await the British attack from the defensive lines that he had hastily set up overnight. Williams, however, suggested an American attack by the Virginia militia before the British could form their lines. Gates approved, saying, Let it be done. Gates then ordered the American right under DeKalb to advance forward as well. From the British front lines, General Cornwallis saw the Americans begin to advance and ordered Colonel Webster to lead his regulars into an assault against them. The intended confrontation turned into a rout almost immediately. The Virginia militia saw the regulars advancing toward them, and they simply turned and fled the field at a dead run before they even came into contact with the enemy. Most of the soldiers threw away their muskets so that they could run faster. As soon as the fleeing Virginians caused the American left flank to evaporate, most of the North Carolina militia that made up the center of the line also turned and ran for their lives. The frightened militia ran past the Continentals who were being held in reserve and just kept going. Most of the field officers joined the panic escape. The commander of the Virginians, General Stevens, later wrote in a letter to Governor Jefferson about the retreat of the Virginia line, 
Picture it as badly as you possibly can, and it will not be as bad as it really is. On the American right, however, a very different battle was unfolding. General DeKalb's Continentals repulsed two enemy assaults, then ordered their own counterattack with bayonets against the enemy lines. The British retreat there was only stemmed by General Cornwallis's personal arrival, where his calm leadership rallied the troops. Meanwhile, British Colonel Webster opted not to send his men after the fleeing Americans. Instead, he pivoted his men to the left and struck the remaining Americans who stayed in the field. His forces first came into contact with the 1 North Carolina Militia Regiment that had been deployed next to the Continentals and which had remained in the field with them. The British regulars plowed into the North Carolina Militia. The regiment amazingly held their ground and fell in brutal hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. General Cobb, by this time, had already suffered a battle wound, but continued to press his men forward. He was unaware that the militia had fled the field on the other side of the American line, and that he was facing the entire British army with less than a thousand men. He sent word to bring in the Maryland reserves, but the messenger discovered that General Smallwood, who was in command of the reserves, had already fled the field. His other officers had remained and led the Maryland line into battle. This slowed the attack of Webster's regulars. But by this time, we have 2,000 British soldiers that were fighting only about 600 Americans who remained on the field. General DeKalb had his first horse shot out from under him, suffered a bayonet wound, and a saber blow to the head during an hour of fighting. Yet he continued to rally his men and to try to push forward, still not aware that the rest of the army had abandoned him. DeKalb finally collapsed on the field as his wounds had weakened him. His Continentals rallied around him, trying to protect their injured commander from being killed. Finally, British cavalry under Colonel Tarleton charged through the last of the American defenders, sending the few survivors fleeing into the swamps. A few dozen men formed a rear guard at the edge of the swamp, buying their comrades a few minutes more to escape. Cornwallis came across to Cobb in the field, stopped his men from stripping the badly wounded general of his uniform. Cornwallis told to Cobb, quote, I am sorry, sir, to see you. Not sorry that you are vanquished, but sorry to see you so badly wounded. De Cobb was unable to respond. Cornwallis provided that to Cobb be taken back to Camden, where he received medical care. As far as we know, the general never regained consciousness and died a few days later. With the Americans defeated, the British turned toward chasing down those in retreat. The American supply wagons saw the British coming. Many of the Teamsters simply cut the lines from their wagons, jumped on the horses, and rode away. The small number of American cavalry then plundered the supply wagons themselves for anything they could carry, then fled with the rest. Female camp followers and their children were left behind with the baggage, which all fell to the tender mercies of Tarleton and his British attackers. Precise casualty numbers are difficult thanks to the chaos after the battle, but estimates range from 700 to 1,000 American casualties, about 250 killed, and the rest wounded and taken prisoner. Almost all of the casualties fell on the Continentals, and the few militia who remained in the field. The British only suffered about 70 killed, 250 wounded, and 18 reported missing. Throughout the course of the battle, 
no one received any orders from General Gates after his statement to permit the American advance just before the battle began. It's not clear exactly when, after that, he decided to flee, but it was some time while the battle was still raging. Gates had been given one of the fastest racehorses in America, and he was making the most of it. As he fled that day, Gates came across a company of militia horsemen under the command of William Davy, who were still advancing toward the battle. Gates didn't even bother to slow down, but shouted to them that they should run away or be attacked by British dragoons. Before Davy could respond, Gates was already galloping northward, too far away to hear them. A short time later, Davy came across militia general Isaac Yugi, who asked him how far he should go in following Gates' last orders. Davy responded, quote, eh, Just as far as you please, for you'll never see him again. By the end of the day, Gates was 60 miles from the battlefield in Charlotte. Three days later, he was 180 miles away in Hillsborough, where he finally stopped long enough to write a report for Congress, explaining how he had attempted to rally the militia, but gave up after the Continental Line fell. Now, this was clearly contrary to all the other witness statements, so Gates had no idea what happened on the battlefield. Gates did not remain in Hillsborough for long either. He kept pushing his horse northward into Virginia, abandoning whatever remained of the Southern Army to fend for itself. The American loss at Camden left the Americans with the loss of a second large Southern Army and the British firmly in control of South Carolina. It also ended the career of General Gates. Next time, American forces in the South attempt to keep the war alive without any support from the Continentals. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Lee Seam, Michael Mulhorn, and TJ Walker. Welcome also to new supporters at the Standard Bearer level, Scott Sherrod and Justin Gold. Thanks also to friend of the show, Lester Mallet and the Gluefast Company, who sent me some Quick Dots Pro, which allow me to put the magnets on the pieces of paper that I send out each month better than using the glue stick that I'd been using before. Thanks much for your support. Also, thanks to my one-time supporters via PayPal, Fitz & Associates, Derek Diltz, and Amanda Caney. Recently, I rejected a few offers to put ads on my podcast because I thought the ad content in that case would be annoying. 
I might not be able to do that if not for the general support of everyone who supports this podcast directly. So, thank you. This week, we covered the Battle of Camden, which, there's no getting around it, was an unmitigated disaster for the Americans. It ended General Gates' military career and ended the life of General Johann de Kalb. De Kalb was one of only two major generals to be killed by a battlefield injury during the entire war. For you trivia buffs, the other one was Richard Montgomery, who had not even received notice that he'd been promoted to major general at the time of his death. The disaster at Camden leads to the obvious question, how could General Gates, who many considered to be the greatest general in the Continental Army, fail so badly? One can always make the argument that much of military leadership relies on some luck, and that perhaps Gates's luck just ran out on this occasion. There is some element of luck in every battle, but good generals certainly increase the odds or minimize the damage based on their effective leadership. Almost everything Gates did before, during, and after Camden is subject, in my opinion, to some pretty legitimate criticism. He paid little attention to the condition and even the number of soldiers that he marched toward Camden. His men were sick and starving when they went into battle, and many of them had very little training or battlefield experience. As a result, most of his army turned and ran at the first sign of battle. Gates made no attempt to gain intelligence on the enemy. He left behind most of his cavalry and made no real attempt to send scouts ahead to gain intelligence on Camden. As a result, he had no idea that Cornwallis had arrived with reinforcements until it was too late not to engage. Gates did not put himself anywhere near the battlefield. Therefore, he could not react instantly to any problems or issue orders on the spot to take advantage of any enemy weaknesses. He could not rally frightened soldiers or serve as an example to other officers. By contrast, the British general, Cornwallis, was on the front lines and reacted immediately to weaknesses in his lines and could take advantage of enemy mistakes. Finally, Gates made no attempt to rally his army after they fled the field. More than half of his army fled the field and could have been rallied at some point, perhaps miles away, at least turning the loss into a setback rather than a complete rout that caused the entire southern army to dissolve into a mob of men running home as fast as they can. Gates himself fled faster and farther than anyone. He seemed more concerned about getting his own story to Congress than in minimizing any damages in the region. All of that begs the question, how did such an experienced officer make so many mistakes? The hero of Saratoga was the commander of the greatest victory of the war up to that point. If he was such a bad leader, how did he score such a win earlier? I would argue that at both Saratoga and Camden, Gates was a latecomer. He took command of an army that was already organized by others, and he simply relied on his junior officers to make critical decisions. In the case of Saratoga, Gates had some incredible junior officers who knew how to gain intelligence and move men as needed and take advantage of battlefield conditions. Gates's remaining behind the lines and staying out of the way at Saratoga was probably a good thing since it kept him from getting in the way of men like General Arnold. At Camden, the bench of good field officers consisted mostly of General de Kalb, who was not even in a position to oversee the whole field of battle. So, I would argue that junior officers carried gates at Saratoga, and there was no one to do so at Camden. In my mind, that makes Gates a poor commander 
who happened to get lucky once. My book recommendation this week is The Battle of Camden, a documentary history by Jim Pisuch. And I'll apologize in advance for probably pronouncing his name horribly wrong. The book itself is rather short, under 200 pages, and if you're looking for a good narrative about the battle, this is probably not your book. I like it as a researcher, since it includes a great many primary resources about the battle, including some things that were not in the free online book that I recommended last week by John Stevens. The author, Pisuch, is a professor at Kennesaw State University, and he published this book in 2006. So, if you want to know about the Battle of Camden really well, you'll probably want to have this book in your library. My online recommendation is a twofer this week. Wayne Lynch published two articles in the Journal of the American Revolution a few weeks apart from each other in 2014. One article, entitled Unlucky or Inept, Gates at Camden, looks at Gates' performance on the battlefield. The other article, entitled Winner or Runner, Gates at Camden, questioned Gates' decision to flee the region so quickly after the battle. Now, I've already admitted my bias against Gates based on everything I've read, Lynch tries to be a bit more balanced, but in doing so seems to rely heavily on Gates's own accounts of events, which I would argue are very self-serving. But I do like Lynch's efforts to remain fair and balanced, and his extensive use of primary sources will give you more of an appreciation of the thoughts at the time in a much more summary form than reading the whole book. As always, I've included links to both articles on my website and blog. My question this week asks, How did the relationship between George Washington and Thomas Jefferson change over time? I'll start by saying that Washington and Jefferson were never particularly close. Both of them served in the Virginia legislature for several years before the war. Jefferson was more than a decade younger than Washington, and neither particularly made an effort to get to know each other well. Jefferson did not come to the Continental Congress, until after Washington had left to take command of the Continental Army. I don't think there's any correspondence between the two men until several years into the war after Jefferson became governor of Virginia. Even then, the correspondence is formal communications about the prosecution of the war in Virginia. When Washington first became president, Jefferson was already in France serving as the American ambassador. Washington appointed Jefferson as Secretary of State because of Jefferson's diplomatic experience, but even Washington originally wanted John Jay to serve as his Secretary of State, but Jay wanted to be on the Supreme Court. Washington's original cabinet consisted of men he had spent years with in the Army, his personal lawyer for many years, and Jefferson. Although Washington and Jefferson respected each other's abilities, they never really knew each other as friends, or got to know each other really well. Jefferson began undercutting Washington over policy disagreements. He even financed a newspaper that attacked President Washington. This divided the two men, and Jefferson eventually resigned from Washington's cabinet. By the time Washington left office, the two men were no longer on speaking terms. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast.
What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.